You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Morning, welcome to the show wherever you are in the world. Joining me this morning from Bahrain, where it's a beautiful sunny morning here, around about 24, 25 Celsius. I'm here ahead of the Crown Princess Cup tomorrow and the penultimate leg of the Bahrain Turf Series. Looking forward to that. Looking forward as well, of course, to being at Leopardstown over the weekend on racing TV duty for the Dublin Racing Festival, much more of which later in the programme in the company of Ted Walsh, who trains any second now, playing David Willie Mullins Goliath in the Irish Gold Cup and senior writer from the Racing Post, Lee Mottishead, with whom I'll be discussing Honeysuckle and much, much more. But first of all, news has just come through from the Jockey Club, the parent company of some, some of the most recognisable racecourses anywhere in the UK, indeed in the world, that they, from here on, have abandoned dress codes across all their racecourses, even at Newmarket on the Roly Mile, July, Aintree for Grand National Day, Cheltenham, there will be no dress codes. Nevin Truesdale is the group chief executive, and I asked him why. Yes, Nick, this is something we've been thinking about for a while. All, all our research, a lot of our research from occasional racecores and potential racecores has told us that the, the imposition or the perceived imposition of dress codes um, about when people when people come racing is it's definitely something of a barrier to people in terms of them um, wanting to come, want, not sure what to wear, not sure which what to wear in which enclosures. And we've also been looking at consistency across our race courses as well, where I think we've had some quite inconsistent policies. So all this really does is simplify all of that and basically say, you know, racing is open, racing is inclusive, and we want people to come um, dressed to feel their best and just have a fantastic day out. So I think, I think it's quite an important symbolic step um, that we're not going to mandate and impose dress codes on people. And I think it will make you know, the sport much more attractive in terms of coming into line with other sports and other leisure activities in a world where dress codes are becoming less and less of a thing. Um, two exceptions I should probably mention at this stage. One is uh, the Queen Elizabeth II stand at Epsom on Derby Day will remain very much morning suits. I think the traditions of that race and that occasion merit that. Um, and also we, we will uh, definitely be um, really guide anything that endorses uh, sporting allegiances or anything that's in any way offensive, as, as you would expect for you know, most leisure venues, that's fairly standard. What I hadn't realised was that Cheltenham, of course, hadn't really had a, a dress code for an awful long time. To what extent was looking at the success of that, the commercial success of that, the way people mix, the effectively one enclosure outside hospitality, was that a driver in, in applying that across the rest of the group? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, you're absolutely right about Cheltenham's commercial success over the years. There are, there are many, many reasons for that. But I think, I think the, the relaxed dress code has probably been part of that. I don't think it's been that well known, actually. But, but when obviously we've, we've, we've uh, always had uh, guidance and sort of tips and, and, and very clear policies on our websites and Cheltenham is definitely one of the more relaxed ones. So I think um, taking that template and saying, you know, let's look at applying that elsewhere across the rest of the group so that people can come, can feel um, that it's a, you know, an open, inclusive, enjoyable day and no, no one's going to judge you for what you wear um, or, or how you choose to dress is an absolutely key part of it. I absolutely agree with that. You've got that juxtaposition now of Jockey Club as the bastion of tradition, established 1750, yeah, with, with old images of being being rather stuffy, with now having no having no dress code. 
Do you see that now as putting pressure on all the other race courses in the in the country to to follow suit? Well, I think they they all have their own views and they have their own policies for very very good reasons. So I'm I'm certain I'm not sure it puts them under pressure because I think that they've they've got a clear very clear rationale for the positions that they take, and we we completely respect that. And certainly not for us to to judge that. All, all we're really doing here is saying that racing is. Um, open racing is progressive, and we're, we're we're bringing ourselves to a position where people can feel that they can dress to be themselves. Um, so we, we obviously respect the traditions of the sport, and we are absolutely upholding those in in many many areas. But I think just we, we also want to demonstrate that the Jock Club is a is a modern, forward looking business and organisation as well, and is looking to the future and the long term health and future of the sport and attracting new generations. All right, that was Nevin Truesdale, Chief Executive of the Jockey Club. Lee Mosset, Senior Writer in the Racing Post, is with me now. Uh, Lee, what do you make of the news that there is to be, effectively, apart from one stand at Epsom on Derby Day, no dress code across the whole family of Jockey Club racecourses, which include Newmarket and Cheltenham and Aintree, some of the most recognisable racecourses anywhere in the world? Nick, I think it is absolutely fantastic uh, news. Um what Nevin said there, I would applaud. Um, couched against that, you know, as, as Nevin says, it is a misconception that racing has been littered with dress codes for a long time. That isn't the case. However, there are still a number of race courses where if you want to go racing, particularly in the most expensive enclosure, you are to a degree told what you have to wear and it's an issue that has impacted the jockey club itself uh, in recent times um, there was a story at sandown on bet 365 gold cup day um, last year when we reported in the racing post that uh, two uh, two race goers had initially been refused entry to the track because they were wearing white footwear Paul Keeley, our top tipster, tweeted that he, he described these as two perfectly well-dressed young women. He said they were the whitest trainers he'd ever seen. But initially, they were deemed not worthy of being allowed into the race course, those trainers. Now, that reflected, I think, a, a failure to understand the way that society has gone, that what one person deems to be smart attire is not what somebody else deems to be smart attire. And I think, thankfully, racing here has understood that society has changed. If you look at the, the, the leisure market, Nick, in which racing has to compete and it has to compete ever harder than any point before. If you look at, say, I've said on the pod before, my favourite hobby is theatre. I can't ever recall going into a theatre um, and being told I had to wear a particular thing. And you look at theatre prices now, they're, they're huge. You, you can pay easily pay 100 quid plus for a ticket to a West End show. You are not told that you need to wear um, a jacket or chinos, let alone a tie. You can wear what you want and people do. The only time I've ever gone into a dining uh, setting and been told what to wear is afternoon tea at the Ritz. And again, that's got that same parallel with wearing, wearing morning dress at Royal Ascot or Epsom on Derby Day. So that's fair enough. Um, I think in general terms, because I say at a time when racing is really having to fight to get people to race courses and to make itself attractive to as wide an audience 
as possible. This is a significant development. It's significant particularly because the jockey club is the jockey club. It's that old, what used to be deemed that old crusty organisation that ran racing and they are leading the way here. I think it has to be applauded um, and even if it doesn't actually make a a significant change because as Nevin himself says a lot of their racecourses already didn't have dress codes I think it sends out a signal mm -hmm. and I think it's a wholly positive signal the interesting thing here Lee is whether other racecourses will be pressurized into into following suit there are some interesting idiosyncrasies out there I was looking last night did you know for example that you are still mandated to wear a tie in the premier enclosure at Doncaster but not at its sister racecourse run by the same racecourse group further up the A1 Newcastle, um, in their premier enclosure. It, it all, and there's all sorts like that as well. Yeah, there are. The, the, the obvious ones, Nick, you know how you're expected to dress if you go to uh, Glorious Goodwood. In fact, I took my husband to a family fun day at uh, Goodwood once, and he was told he had to wear a tie to get into that main Richmond enclosure. Now, that's fair enough in the sense that we should have known that that was in the rules, but you don't expect it when you're going for a day out. And it's far from just Goodwood. Um, a lot of the big tracks, you say York, we know that if you're going to the main enclosure at York, you're expected to wear a jacket and tie. You reference Doncaster. Um, I was looking on their website last night and it says for the Premier Enclosure and Home Straight Restaurant, the dress code for the Premier Enclosure and the Home Straight Restaurant is jacket and tie for gentlemen and smart attire for ladies, strictly no jeans, sportswear or trainers. Not just would you mind not, but strictly no. Um, I just think it doesn't, it doesn't feel right in... 2023 particularly it doesn't sit with the image that horse racing wants to portray itself in i mean and, and, yeah, but, but i also think nick as well that um people if they go for a day at the races particularly if they are paying to go into the most expensive enclosure on the race course they will want to dress up you know you go anywhere in in the world we were both in in, uh, in Australia for the, the spring carnival there. And if you went to Flemington on Derby Day or Cup Day and you looked around the race course, practically all the men were dressed smartly. Most of them wearing what is the, 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 uh, the normal Aussie outfit for men of the races of a, a jacket, chinos, tie, pocket square, women all smartly attired in, 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 in beautiful uh, dresses with, with often with, with hats. People tend to want to dress up when they go to the races and that's a that's a really good well, thing but 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 it, but, it, but, it, but, it, but, but lee at flemington the dress code is quite rigorous and very prescriptive as well like much more so than anywhere in, in the uk yeah it is nick it is but but again i think people there they do want to do it and they do want to to dress in a certain way at the races now that you might find that that Flemington might move in the same direction. In some ways, the VRC, the Victoria Racing Club, has parallels with, with Ascot in how it, it sees itself within horse racing in that, in that country. Um, but I think, generally speaking, people do want to dress up when they go to the races. But it's something that I think people should do because they want to do it, not because they feel they have to do it. And with the best one in the world, if someone is walking around uh new market around the the paddock on 2000 guineas day and they're in a t-shirt a pair of jeans and a pair of trainers none of us are going to keel over and faint you know it, it it won't 
impact Chaldi as he walks around the paddock. It won't impact any of the connections. It won't send out signals that racing is going downhill. It will actually send out a signal that racing wants you to come racing and is happy for you to wear whatever you want to wear, so long as you're not, as, as they say in the in the instructions, dressed in a offensive or anything that might cause trouble. Um, it, it does put pressure on other race courses. It necessarily will do, and they will have to make their own decisions. But I say, I think particularly because the, this is a jockey club, an organisation that a lot of people outside racing still thinks runs horse racing. I think the fact that they are saying this and the way they are saying this is extremely welcome. All right, Lee, we're only a couple of days away from the Dublin Racing Festival. Is there a dress code for the Dublin Racing Festival? I would be amazed if there's a dress code for the Dublin Racing Festival. Do, do some do some quick Googling, Nick. Here we you? go. Style is at the heart of racing at Leopardstown. We recommend what smart, is? casual attire for all race meetings and ask you to dress comfortably and wear something that is weather appropriate. So not not really, I suppose, is the answer. No, actually, just going back to what we were discussing before, Nick, we, we, we recommend, I, I don't think people mind being advised what they might want to wear. Sometimes you go to an event and you think, what should I wear? If it's a recommendation, if it's saying, well, we, people often wear this, that's grand. Well done, Leopardstown. Yeah, okay. There might be there might be a little bit of a debate about this in, in the, the days to come, but we've moved a long way from when orange dots were being handed out at Ascot a few years ago for those. <laughs> the orange dots, yeah. Who weren't, who weren't in the riot tower. It's not that long ago either. Right, let's talk about the Dublin Racing Festival. Henry de Bromhead has come out with some positive quotes about Honeysuckle, as you would expect. She's she's very well. Taking on Stateman and Vauban, the Willie Mullins pair, in what effectively is a, a, a three-horse go for the Irish champion hurdle this weekend. Um, to what extent is this going to shape the remainder of the season, this race, Lee? Well, I, I think it will will shape the rest of Honeysuckle's racing career, Nick. The connections have already made clear that she will not be running in the Mayor's Hurdle at the Cheltenham Festival. It's a champion hurdle or nothing. And clearly, if she's to be a, a serious champion hurdle candidate again, she has to run a big race on Sunday. I don't necessarily think that she has to win the race on Sunday because in Stateman and Vauban, you have two extremely talented, progressive uh, young hurdlers um, from the, the Woody Mullins squad. And Honeysuckle could run a race and finish very close to those two horses. And I think time might show that she'd run close to her best form. But I think they'll want her to win the race. It's a very strange situation that Honeysuckle is going into any race and not going into it as the favourite. State man heads the betting for this Irish champion hurdle. I hope she, I hope Nick, that she wins on, on Sunday. And I partly hope that because I think at the start of this season, there's there's always a, a, a narrative, a big, a big play, a big story at the start of any jump season. And I think in this particular season, it was that, that thought, that hope, that desire that we saw, we see Constitution Hill versus Honeysuckle in the champion hurdle. And I think realistically, the way their two seasons have gone so far has meant there has been a chasm has opened up between them in the betting and what people expect to happen at Cheltenham in March. It would be great I think if Honeysuckle could produce a dazzling display at Leopardstown, as she has in the past, this has often been the race where she's been at her most impressive. If she could do that again, Nick, and make that head-to-head -head not only possible, but exciting, I think that would be a great thing for the sport. All right, let's have a look at the Irish Gold Cup then. Part of the Dublin Racing Festival, a Gallop and Deschamps, the hot favourite. But 
Ted Walsh is rather playing David to Willie Mullins' Goliath here, courtesy of the uh, dual Grand National placed any second now. Uh, intriguing 11-year-old Ted. I still feel he's almost a bit of an unknown quantity in, in, in this grade, even though he's done what he's done. What do you feel about him now? Yeah, well, it's probably the first time that he's run in a in a grade one chase. But up to now, he probably didn't deserve to. He was a, in the high, late late sort of 150s or early 150s up till he ran his penalties for running so well in the national he's now 163 and there's not a whole lot of choice he's a top weight in the highest this last week which would have been a big ask it's an ideal prep and listen it's not a prep as such he's, he's going to be competitive but it's an ideal fits into an ideal slot for the national he ran at Christmas was due to run before Christmas but the weather called things off I'd like to get two or three runs into him before entry and this fits in nicely, and then he can go somewhere else in a month's time, and then he'll have a month to uh, Liverpool. What, what, do you, what can you realistically expect when you look at the, the overall quality of the field? Uh, like, outside of the favourites, uh, I could expect to get into the money. And when I talk about the money, there's money for every horse that runs in an early, but I mean, uh, get into the serious place money. And um, Statler's the one horse that could improve a good bit. He's a young enough horse. He was a good novice last year, won the National Hunt Chase. He's uh, had a good run at Tremor, a track that wouldn't suit him, a sharp old track uh, behind Henry's horse that won the Gold Cup two years ago. Uh, he could um, realistically uh, be second. And uh, I'd say he's probably short enough price to be second. And I have as good a chance then as any of the others. Uh, Ken Boy is a very good horse around Leperstown, but like myself, he's not getting any younger. And uh, Fury Road is what he is, a consistent horse. And... Uh, uh, Peter Fahey's horse then who ran well in the um, Welsh National they're all the sort of horses and Frank of the Port didn't run great at Torles so I'd be disappointed if he doesn't run well when I say run well be competitive for the place money I don't expect him to uh, frighten Willie's horse who I think is a serious Gold Cup contender and again he has to prove that he's he is what we all think he is and what's your gut feeling on that I mean you've seen enough top class horses over the years Ted you look at Galapande Sean do you look at him and think yeah he's a real one yeah, I think he's a real one. He was good last year as a novice. Uh, his jumping was a bit exuberant at times. And uh, he was a very unlucky to fall at Cheltenham. That wasn't really... He jumped it well and just knuckled on landing. Could happen to any horse. He could have stood up as well. He was going to be a very easy winner of a very poor race. Uh, the second horse that ended up winning is, is not with a shadow of the horse he was as a novice. Uh, he came back then. He won well at Punch at uh, Fairy House. Or punches on, I'm not sure which is through my, on my head. And uh, then he uh, he won the Dorkham Brothers well also. He looks to be a more settled horse this year. His jumping is more accurate. He was exuberant. I saw him at Leperstown. He took the size of my eyes the way he jumped in his first chase. He was brilliant, bowled along and jumped good. But you can't keep doing that. And a few times when I saw him at Cheltenham, I thought he was a little bit sort of wild. But he's a different horse this year. Paul was able to settle him. You'd know by the way Paul pulled up and he was delighted with him. He was a lovely ride and he's a very good horse. He was a very good novice. He's a winner over hurdles at Cheltenham, a winner over fences. He's the young horse on the up. All the others that are in it are much of a muchness. We saw him in the Cotswold chase last week. Any one of the three or four of them could come in reverse placings with the other horse the next time they run. Um, of the young horses coming through, he's entitled to be favoured for the Gold Cup. Mm. Um, now, Listen, he's got to go and do it. That's a whole different ball game. How many times have we seen it over the years that we think they're going to be superstars? And they're very good horses, but superstars are few and far between. 
All right, that was Ted Walsh, trainer of any second. Now, Lee Mottishead rejoins me. And as you heard on this podcast yesterday with Andrew Coonan uh, in Ireland, the, he was speculating about a, a deputation from the BHA going to Leopardstown to brief Irish jockeys on the whip regulations ahead of Cheltenham. We've been speaking about that plenty this week. I don't want to deep dive into it too much more today, Lee. Uh, but is that a good idea on the part of the BHA? And I'll ask you one supplementary question to that, which is, should the should the betting in period be extended beyond Cheltenham? Uh, so in response to your first question, Nick, I think it has to be a good thing. The BHA are heading out to, to Leopardstown this weekend. It's a recognition of the, uh, the hugely significant part that Irish racing participants play at the, the Cheltenham Festival. It's long odds on that they win more races than anybody else at the Cheltenham Festival. And we don't want um, Irish jockeys. We don't want any jockeys falling foul of the whip rules, but those Irish jockeys very often will be going to the festival having never ridden under the new rules, which are due to come in on February 13th before. So I think it's perfectly sensible the BHA are going out to speak to Irish jockeys. In response to your second question, should the introduction, implementation, if you like, of these rules be pushed back beyond the spring festivals? I would hope that isn't necessary. And I say that, Nick, because the hot point here seems to be the the shoulder height rule that's what it appears that everybody is kicking off about uh, in the weighing room they're, they're not complaining about the reduced number of uh hits at, uh, before um penalties kick in um they talk about the shoulder height rule i just think that the shoulder height rule was there before Nick. The, the, that was always in the rules yes the penalties have been increased have been doubled for falling foul of the shoulder height rule, but there was a shoulder height rule always in place anyway. If the way that stewards are interpreting the shoulder height rule was the same as it was before, if we can come to some happy understanding of what the shoulder height rule actually is and should be, I think we can move forward. And I think that's important because these rules, they, they've already been significantly changed since the point at which they were first introduced with the removal of the the ban on on uh, forehand use if we have a a second major revision to the rules i think there would be a, an extent to which the regulator i.e the bha suddenly looks as if it is being regulated yeah. by the people it's supposed to regulate exactly. And that can't be a good thing. I think there, I think there is easily room for a, comp, a little bit of compromise here, or a little bit of flex in terms of just tweaking one aspect of that, or just tweaking the definition. And you've pretty much arrived at a situation that people are happy to move forward with. And neither side wants jockeys to get long bands. I think that's I think both sides want the same thing. It's just yeah. a question of it's just a question of how how they get there now. But uh, I'm sure there'll be. Um, as much heat as light uh, on this between now and Cheltenham and, and beyond. Well, the world's richest horse race, the Saudi Cup, looms large and uh, our footsteps on the road to Riyadh a little louder with Martin Kelly. Uh, Martin, this week we'll be talking about the Pegasus shortly, but I I ought to start with the, the local qualifier, the custodian of the two holy mosques, which you were bigging up on the show last week. What What ended up happening? 
We had, in the end, Nick, a runaway winner in a horse called Scotland Yard under Victor Gutierrez. This horse took the £325,000 feature by 10 and a quarter lengths in the end, beating a fellow import in electability. Both horses by Quality Road, who is the sire of Emblem Road, and Scotland Yard carries the same colours as Emblem Road. Those of Prince Saud uh, bin Salaman Abdulaziz. He's now three from three in the kingdom. Scotland Yard, he won a maiden, a domestic group one, and that listed race last weekend, having come across from Steve Asmussen in the USA. And the field for the Saudi Cup, Nick, starting to take shape. Scotland Yard in there now after qualifying. Emblem Road, last year's winner, also will uh, will be in the lineup. There's a space for one more local. We know we've got uh, Tiber coming across with Country Grammar from Bob Baffert's. Saffron Beach in there for Jane Chapel Hyam. And possibly Algiers, who won out in Dubai last time out. So the field coming together. And I believe it's a week on Friday when we get likely fields announced from the Jockey Club. Yeah, I can't imagine why you wouldn't run out Algiers, to be honest. It looks right up his street, the one turned nine furlongs on the dirt with that that kind of money. Um, and you mentioned Quality Road there, just a, a little mini diversion. He's the sire of Mr. Cut, and we talked about Mr. Cut on, on the podcast a few days ago with the owner, Ed Babington. They want to come to Saudi. I asked him about maybe not going to the Neon Turf Cup and going to the Saudi Cup itself. And he said, oh, maybe a year too soon to try on the on the dirt. But it must be it must be sorely tempting. Yeah, I was going to come on to him actually a little bit later on, um, Mr. Cup, because they've got that as a as a target. But I just think that he's not going to be high enough rated to get in. So the Neon Turf Cup will probably be where he ends up due to his rating more than anything else. I know you wanted to to consider the Pegasus, and and I'll I'll again. You could imp- run with that. You were there. You can well, tell us all about it. I, I I will implore the connections of Art <laughs> Collector to have a to have another think about this. I I just thought that he showed a different dimension to his game in the in the pegasus the other day yet we all know that it wasn't the best pegasus that's been run you know the, the time will tell you that the, the the quality of horse will tell you that but it was a deep and competitive field and is this year's saudi cup going to be an impossible challenge no it's definitely not is there good place money to pick up even if he thinks he can't beat Tabor and country grammar and so forth well yes there is and the fact that he's not just a, a sitting duck for all the others means i think that he's He's got some credentials. Anyway, that's for, for Bill Mott to decide. I don't think there's anything else coming out of that race, though, Martin. I, the, the Safi Joseph trio completely blew out. I know White Abario was a possibility, but I don't think he can go he can go anywhere like that now. No, I think both from the, the, the Pegasus and from the Pegasus turf, it all sounded pretty negative, I think, in terms of horses coming across to, to Saudi Arabia. Um, so I know we've had two winners come across previously, but it doesn't look like that anything's going to be travelling this year. What about qualifiers for other races? There were loads on Friday. Uh, we had the turf sprint qualifier won by Raid, six-year-old winning by five and a quarter lengths. He was eighth in the dirt sprint a couple of years back, won round two of the International Jockeys Challenge last year under Glenn Boss. So he's now qualified for the turf sprint. The middle distance qualifier for the Neon Turf went the way of a horse called Castle, a six-year-old by Frankel, who won the, by the best part of three lengths. He was formerly trained in France by Christophe Furlond, seventh on his debut, and then he improved to win last time out. He also carries the uh, Emblem Roads colours. The Dirt Sprint qualifier was won by a horse called Pagan. He ran third to Raid in the Jockeys Challenge last year, and it's a bit of an improver, really. He won his last couple of starts and completed the three-timer. And as we suggested last week, the Saudi Derby qualifier was won by My Map, he split the field on the final turn, one by two and a quarter. He's unbeaten in four now, uh, four career starts, and that's son of Liam's map on course for the Saudi Derby. 
All right. And interesting developments taking place in South America, in, in Uruguay. Yeah, they were represented in the Saudi Cup last year by Aero Trem. And they've got a horse coming across for the Saudi Derby now. This is S. Unico, who won the Uruguayan Grand Criterium. He's heading for the Saudi Derby. Like Aero Trem, he's trained by Antonio Sintra. This will be his fifth runner at the Saudi Cup. And S. Unico last seen finishing second out in Dubai. He was second in the UAE 2000 Guinness uh, trial on January the 13th. He was running on well over seven furlongs that day. Stepping up to the mile certainly will suit him. And John Gosden is the European trainer who's won the Saudi Cup, famously with Mishrif in that epic battle a couple of years ago. He's he's going to be back for more, not the horse, the trainer. <laughs> yeah, the Gostons are back. They've got to have two runners on the undercards. They've got the e-ball winner, Trawler Man, heading for the Red Sea Turf Handicap. If you remember, he was drawn widest in the e-ball, made pretty much all to win that day under Frankie Tatori. Frankie likely to be back on again. This horse last seen finishing third to True Channel on Champions Day. They've got cup aspirations for him back in the UK through the summer. And Mostadaf as well, who's heading for the 1.5 million Neum Turf Cup, the September stakes winner. He was down the field in the arc last time we saw him. He's going to be coming back from the mile and a half to the mile and a quarter. And he'll be taking on the likes of Sabuska, who's entered at Linkfield over the weekend with Ryan Moore booked. And as you touched on, uh, George Bowers missed the cut, who beat Algiers at uh, Linkfield last time, who's since has boosted the form in Dubai. As we said, he's in the Saudi Cup. Unlikely to get in there. He will probably miss the Cup for that and the uh, the Neom Turf looking more likely. And Charlie Hills, he always likes an international trip and he's having a, having another crack. Tell me Pogo's on the list for something. <laughs> yeah, Pogo's most definitely there. He's got two in the 1351 sprint, Pogo and Garris. Garris, a group three winner in uh, in Doville during the summer. And Pogo, who was a real improver last summer, despite being a seven-year-old, won the challenge stakes. He was fifth in this race last year. Charlie's saying they're going to ride him more patiently this time and hopefully try and improve on that fifth-place finish. Good old Pogo. Martin, thanks so much. Thanks, Nick. Martin Kelly there, road to Riyadh. Lee is back with me. Lee, there's serious issues, it seems, at, at retraining of racehorses. What's happening uh, to the charity? Yes, yeah, so um, my colleague, uh, Chris Cook, um, Nick, has, has produced a very interesting story in the Racing Post today, uh, revealing that five of the most senior figures within retraining of racehorses, British Racing Charity, uh, to look after the welfare of horses after they leave horse racing, um, have left the organisation. In particular, Dyer Buthnot, who has been the chief executive of the organisation for two decades, Claire Balding, who was the patron of retraining of racehorses, her mother, Lady Emma Balding, who has been a trustee since its inception, Jenny Hall, the head of welfare, and John Maxey, the communications consultant for the organisation. They have all left retraining of racehorses. Uh, it follows the uh, appointment of David Catlow as managing director of the organisation in September. Now, there's nothing in the press release that says there is a direct connection between those two things. But I think if you read between the lines, Nick, there are clearly things going on at retraining of racehorses. Um, Dyer Buthnot was not quoted within the press release that uh, revealed her departure. And when the Racing Post sought comment from her, she said she was unable to do so. That is not a usual situation. David Catlow, the, say the, the, the MD who came in above the chief exec, Dyer Buthnot, uh, said in his quote, I don't know what's been going on before I came, but RO is being given the opportunity to step up and do more things. 
if somebody doesn't want to be in that space, that's fine too. There's nothing sinister about that. People choose to leave and that's fine. Well, that is fine, but this does seem to be sinister to an extent. Chris reveals in his piece that there is thought to be tension between the Horse Welfare Board and retraining of racehorses with the Horse Welfare, Horse Welfare Board, which came into effect in 2019, attempting to exert an influence on ROR and its policies. And just in a wider sense, Nick, I thought there was one particularly interesting line that David said in the piece. If aftercare is so important, he says, what investment in the in is the industry prepared to put into this? He laments the fact that ROR isn't able to do as much as he would like it to do. And I would imagine that those who have left the organisation and those still with the organisation would like much more funding to be put into this sector. It's of huge importance and it is clearly regrettable that things are not straightforward in that sector at the moment. All right, it's Thursday and every Thursday where possible, we try and highlight on this podcast the excellent work of Racing Welfare, supporting racing's workforce in every conceivable fashion. I'm pleased to welcome today, once again, to, to the pod, Simon Bailey, who is horse racing's chaplain. Um, but as well as offering pastoral care through the chaplaincy service, Simon is one of five mental health first aid instructors at Racing Welfare and is helping deliver the subsidised training courses up and down the country. Simon, first of all, uh, and thank you for joining me, talk to me a little bit about Time to Talk Day, uh, which is which is today, Thursday the 2nd of February. Yeah, and it's good to talk to you as well, Nick. Time, <laughs> time to Talk Day, I think, is an idea um, from Mind and Rethink Mental Illness. Um, and they've come together. Obviously, every day is a good time to talk. But um, I think it's a day that brings to the forefront um, that it is good to talk. And I've, I've quite often said over the years um, that if you're not OK, then you need to talk to somebody. But if you are OK, then you need to listen to somebody. And um, and I think, again, it's that kind of day today that we can bring those kind of things to, to the fore. Um, it is good to talk. It's good for us to get big things off our chest, isn't it? Absolutely. And you're you're one of, as I said, five mental health first aid instructors at at Racing Welfare. Just t tell me yeah. why signing up for that training is a is a positive step. I think it's good to promote good mental health, especially in the horse racing industry. And um, we've got dates coming up in March on the two day courses. And it's good for the industry to get on these. It's good to, I think, first and foremost, to see the, the signs in our own health um, and be able then, if um, we see those signs as, as perhaps not being quite where we want them or quite where we were to go and get help. And then it's also good for us to look after um, those that we work alongside. And if we see signs in their health that aren't perhaps great either, we've we've got the ability then to you know approach them to talk to them about it and um you know and to get 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 them help as well nick and uh, i think that's the key to the courses um that are coming up in march and just uh, as you said arming people with the tools to be able to to start those conversations at, around mental health recognizing that there there are are ways to to train yourself mentally just as there are ways to train yourself physically yeah, absolutely. And also to give um, 
to tell everybody that how you feel this week or this month is not how you could feel next month or you know it's um you know it's good good to know there's help there and there's there's organizations that we can pass you on to we're obviously the first port of call um we might not be the ideal base um to help all the way through someone's issues but we can pass you on to somebody that can Simon, thanks for talking to me. I, I should just um, stress that dates for racing welfare subsidised courses are now online. They're, they're normally three hundred pounds these, but they're they're so heavily subsidised that they are eighty eight pounds per person. And the first is taking place at Jack Berry House in Moulton on the first and second of March. And of course, everyone across the racing industry encouraged today to join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Time to Talk or head to RacingWelfare.co.uk. Okay, thanks to Simon. Now, we've talked a lot about the Dublin Racing Festival, a little less about Sandown Park this Saturday. Features the Grade 1 Silly Isles Novices Chase, sponsored by Virgin Bet. But there is a new race title earlier in the card. To tell us more, here's Clark of the Course, Andrew Cooper. Andrew, what are you doing? Yes, morning, Nick. We, we're going to name the two-mile handicap chase on the card after Dolos, uh, who has... Uh, run in the race for the last five years. He's won it three times. He's come second in it twice. Uh, declared again for Saturday. Um, it's going to become the Virgin Bet Dolos Handicap Chase. I think it's a, a nice gesture uh, that we can do. Um, having sort of run it past Paul, Paul Nichols, who was, who was more than happy for us to, to, to do so. So uh, just a nice little gesture for Dolos on Saturday. I think that's a fantastic idea. You also run the Grade One Virgin Bet Ciliars Novices Chase, of course, and I, I see Jerry Colomb has been declared. We spoke to Gordon Elliott earlier in the week. He said he was nervous about the ground at Leopardstown. It, it's unlikely to be particularly soft with you at Sandown, though, is it? No, it's not. Not over fences. We've been dry since the sort of night of the thaw last week. Um, no rain in sight, and we've been sort of slowly drying a little bit each day. I, to be honest, we didn't emerge from the thaw as soft as we thought we would. Um, bearing in mind we had two inches of rain here in the week after the uh, Tolworth Hurdle and Veterans Chase Day. So, yeah, no, we're shaping up to be, it, it certainly warps as sort of as jump winter good to soft ground. Well, there you go. What about that then? Sixth time for Dolos uh, and the race named after him. Three wins, two seconds, Lee. And I was just looking here. He won off 144, 149, 157, 158. Last year, Nichols managed to get him down to 143. He's, he's a clever man, Nick. He's a clever man. He's run off 146 um, on this occasion. I think it's a great thing, this, Nick. One of the... One of the many uh, bland lines that I pump out regularly is that it's the horses who are the true stars of this sport. Uh, and this recognises Dollis's part on this day and in this race. Wouldn't be a surprise at all if he uh, won this one again. Um, he's dropped down the weights down to 146 this year on a perfectly good race by his stable companion, Grenatine, in the Holden Gold Cup. First time out, um, was beaten by editor Dijit at Kempton last time, but time again now shows that that was a, wasn't an embarrassing effort anyway. I think he has a big chance. Great to see that bit of renaming at Sandown on Saturday. They will need to do some renaming next year because, as Nicky Henderson has pointed out, the contender's hurdle has disappeared from this programme, and yet Sandown are still calling it Contender's Day, which will rub salt 
into Nicky's wound as he's saddling Balco Coastal. Uh, he for won't mind. Silly he won't mind. He's found another. He's found another dolly up at least for the mares, hasn't he? In that thing at that race at Doncaster last weekend, the Epitaph one. <laughs> So yeah, that worked, that worked out he, quite well, didn't it? Given, given what a good trainer of mares he is, and he often got one of championship standard, that'll Nick, be the, you, that'll be the next contender's hurdle as long as they're female. You put me on the spot earlier on. Read the wit. Let me do it to yeah. you once. Go for it. Mares hurdle or or champion hurdle. Uh, uh, so what Nicky Henderson's thinking? I think he th- he thinks if Honeysuckle um, gets beaten and then goes to the mares hurdle. Uh, he might not run Epitant there, uh, but if she doesn't, then he might. Uh, but of course, don't forget, he's also got Marie's Rock for the for the mayor's yeah. hurdle, which suits her, fits her like a glove. I'd run Epitant in the champion hurdle myself. Um, yeah. I, I know it didn't show you much the other day. She's won the race before. She's been second in it last year, not beaten that far. She she is one of these now that seems to be getting better as the season progresses as well. Yeah. You've got to run her in the champion hurdle, haven't you? I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed with myself for taking so long to even answer that question. Well, Nick, the, the, those of us who believe, as you do, that the best horses should run in the best races would always say that Epitone should run in the champion hurdle. I mean, and as for Honeysuckle and the Mayor's Hurdle, don't let's, let's not even go there again. That that seems to have opened up a bit of a division because um, I, I'm if I'm not going completely mad, De Brom had put the, the Mayor's Hurdle on the table... I did a podcast saying, is he winding us up? And then um, uh, uh, Peter Maloney said, it'll either be the champion hurdle or nothing, which seemed to be what the owner was thinking, Kenny Alexander. And then d- the trainers put the mayor's hurdle back on the table again last weekend. So I don't know, there might be a bit of a division of opinion there. Either way, let's hope she wins this weekend and we don't have to worry about that. Lee, do you have a tip for me for today? I do, Nick. I do, I do. Actually, going back to Sandown, their uh, total hurdle day, one of the most uh, pleasurable things for me was seeing uh, Lydia Richards train a, a decent winner. Um, Lydia has been having a superb season. She's one of racing's great grafters. She produces results, and she's certainly done that with Certainly Red, who has won his last two starts, including last time out at Sandown. He won there by a wide margin. He's gone up in the weights again, carries 12 stone, in the three o'clock at Wincanton, the Dick Hunt Wigmore handicap chase, but I think he'll win. Certainly red for Lydia Richards and Mark Goldstein in the three o'clock at Wincanton. And I would concur. Lee, thank you very much. Thank you very much to your company. I'll be back to do it again tomorrow. Bye bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.